Welcome back. It's another edition of the Red Star Radio podcast, and I have a guest with me today. Uh, we're going to be talking about uh, well the world situation and specifically through the lens of anti-imperialism. My guest today is Josie Bra, who is the uh, vice chair of the Communist Party of Great Britain, Marxist-Leninist, and he's here today to talk about a new or relatively new uh, platform that's been launched on a global basis, the World Anti-Imperialist Platform, a very uh, vital innovation in today's uh, global imperialist conflict. So, uh, Jyoti, welcome to Red Star Radio. Thank you very much for having me, Alex. And we're going to begin by uh, just talking a little bit about the World Anti-Imperialist Platform itself, Jyoti. So, can you give us an overview of the platform and why you think that this is an important uh, innovation and uh, a new, and why this is an important platform at this stage in uh, current events? Yeah, sure. So it's really the the um, the war, the proxy war against Russia in Ukraine, that has um, put us onto a, a new level when it comes to the battle in the world between imperialism and and the forces against imperialism, and really exposed, if you like. A, uh, a great weakness uh, in the left-wing, progressive, communist, socialist movements all over the world, actually, when it comes to their understanding of imperialism, um, which has rendered the working class mass response to the war around the world uh, much weaker than it ought to be. Now, we're in a situation, we can see that the imperialists are really uh, in the middle of a massive economic crisis and as they do in, in their attempt to respond to that crisis, they're really ramping up uh, their drive to war, their drive to uh, recolonize um, and control every corner of the globe that at the moment kind of resists their kind of looting. And we'll talk more in, in detail later, I guess, uh, about the background of, of the war against Russia uh, in Ukraine. Yes. But it, it's become very clear that... Um, part of uh, the war drive uh, is the imperialist attempt to portray Russia as an imperialist aggressor and thereby to neutralise an organised anti-imperialist resistance to NATO aggression by presenting it as an, kind of inter or, or an inter-imperialist conflict at best and at worst just a one-sided aggression, imperialist aggression from Russia's side. Uh, this is a very strong uh, propaganda trend that's been being, the, the groundwork's been being laid for quite some time. And the problem that we find is a huge proportion of uh, what remains of the world communist and socialist movements is open, totally wide open to this reasoning um, because of a, a real lack of understanding of Lenin, of imperialism, uh, of of how the economic system of imperialism works. So they're susceptible to the idea that imperialism just means being big, having a big economy, being a bit capitalist and being big, et cetera, et cetera. And, and the lack of, of decent understanding of what imperialism is lays people very wide open to being misled about the nature of, of Russia's operation in Ukraine and the, the nature of Russia's economy 
Um, and, and many different weaknesses in our movement are being played on. Some of it go right back to the Sino-Soviet split. Some of it is to do with the collapse of the Soviet Union and people's you know, hatred of the fact that Russia is now capitalist when it used to be socialist. All kinds of things have been played on and manipulated, but fundamentally there's a weakness in the understanding of many communists and socialists around the world about the nature of Russia's economy and the nature, therefore, of Russia's war. And what that means is that the, that the movement against NATO aggression is much weaker than it should be because the people who should be at its head are, 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 are absent from their posts. So our aim with the World Anti-Imperialist Platform is to make very clear what imperialism is and what it isn't, to show the nature properly, theoretic, scientifically, uh, of China, of Russia, of the targeted countries, and why it is that it's in the interests of the masses everywhere to be on the side of Russia, China, and all the other targets of NATO aggression, and standing firmly together, creating the strongest possible camp against imperialism. It's NATO imperialism, which is the world's number one enemy and must be defeated for any of us to make progress, the progress we also desperately want and desire, and that this crisis is making so clear that we really, really need. Right. So I, I wanted to pick up on a theme you were touching on there, Jyoti, which is the the weakness of um, the left in general, but also uh, a, a lot of co- people who describe themselves and organizations who go by the name of communist, socialist, uh, various other descriptions along those lines. And so I'll put I'll put to you the um, the point of view that a lot of these people put forward, which is um, along the lines of that this is uh, two imperialist blocks clashing, or that Russia is the imperialist power. If in fact, if you um, believe the words of pro-NATO leftists like Paul Mason, oh. then it's Russia who's waging the anti the imperialist war here, and therefore we should support Ukraine. That's uh, the the line that a lot of the British left have taken. Not all of them, but many of them. So, how would you uh, respond to that, if you if you will? It's actually pretty horrific, isn't it? Because when they say we should support Ukraine against Imperial Russia, what they're actually saying is we should support NATO. There is no independent Ukraine, hasn't been for quite some time. Ukraine is a is a total puppet proxy force. Its people are being used as cannon fodder by NATO, by the, you know, the world's most aggressive imperialist bloc, well, the only aggressive imperialist bloc. Uh and so, you know, stand with Ukraine, support Ukraine is a is a, a cover for saying back NATO. Hmm. Uh, so that's the first thing to understand when people when people say that. What's the actual content of of that slogan that sounds nice? You know, and and this whole thing about Russia, the imperialist power. Uh, you, you see that the left is being attacked with its own weapons, and we've we've seen this again and again. We we've seen it with identity politics. You know, the way that the struggle for uh, you know. A, against racism and for uh, female liberation, uh, women's liberation has been co-opted by our rulers and turned into weapon against the workers and to divide the workers and, you know, a, a kind of morality play, you know, rather than uh, an, an, an argument about words, rather than something about the, the, the real substance, which is a, actually a class issue. Um, and again, we have this with this question of um, casting the aggressed against as the aggressor and using the terminology of Marxism, 
Hmm. You know, the terminology of socialism and that is very baffling to people and it, and it definitely puts those who haven't properly studied the situation on the back foot because you know if you're an anti-imperialist if you're a socialist of course you hate imperialism and when someone accuses uh someone of being an imperialist it, it automatically sort of puts you on the defensive and feeling nervous to associate and you know this this deluge of propaganda about Russian aggression and Russian imperialism is meant precisely to do that, to make make us wary of, of having any uh, sympathy or, or trying even to understand more deeply what's happening, um, because you don't want to be accused of something that to you is like the ultimate crime. Um, but it, it, it shows you very much how over the years, our, our movement has substituted the kind of identity, the emotional identity of being a socialist with the substance of studying Marxism and really being a socialist and believing that your job is to fight for socialism by understanding Marxism, spreading it to the working class, scientifically understanding the system, how it works, how you replace it, why, you know, all that stuff that Marxism teaches you, but which so many parties have really kind of let go of. And they've in, in its place, a whole lot of bourgeois prejudice has come in and it makes people very easy to manipulate. So, um, sorry, you were asking me about oh, this stand with Ukraine. Uh, yes, the uh, the allegation made by like the likes of Mason and others who held that ridiculous pro-war rally last year yeah. um, that... It's Russia that is preying upon Ukraine, and therefore the, the we must defend Ukrainian sovereignty um, yeah. by um, standing with Ukraine. In reality, as you say, standing with NATO. So there's a whole lot of of context to the specifics of the of the war uh, in Ukraine and how the fortifications and the militarization of Ukraine, you know, the coup that replaced, you know, its elected government, uh, what well, has happened twice, but most recently in 2014, you know, the, the, the militarization of, uh, and, uh, and the boosting funding of kind of Nazi forces, all this type of thing. You know, there's a whole load of context of that specific thing. But in general, to characterize Russia as an imperialist country is just to fling around swear words. You know, it's using the word imperialism without any scientific uh, basis or context. Uh, an imperialist country is one whose economy is primarily characterized by the extraction of loot from around the globe. And its people uh, receive uh, a little, a bit of a bribe. Uh, you know, a section of the working class receives a hefty bribe, the rest of the working class a little bit of a bribe because of being uh, the, the home population um, of a country that, that lives that way, whose economy functions that way. Uh, it's a parasitic economy. And the whole, it's, it, imperialism is a world economic system. Um, it's not something that, you know, just because a company, a, a country has one or two big monopoly companies in it, doesn't make its whole economy uh, an imperialist economy. Uh, you have to look at the relationship between its finance capitalists and the rest of the world. And what's very clear is that Russia's economy is primarily characterized by the export of raw materials. It is not characterized by the export of capital and the repatriation of super profits that have been uh, gained from looting the rest of the world. That's a fundamental point to understand. Mm -hmm. uh, 
you can't just say imperialists because they're big or because they still have an army. You know, again, you look at the character of the armies. You know, we're constantly being asked to be scared of the aggressiveness of Russia and China and the DPRK because they have big armies. Why do they? How did those armies come about? Were they built by aggressive finance capital with the aim of backing up its economic might around the world? Is that why they were built? Is that how they behave? No. These are defensive armies that were built up on the backs of socialist revolutions in order to defend those countries against the overthrow of their governments, of their socialist systems by outside forces, which very much wanted to do that, are always ready to do that. Um, and you know, the first lesson that the socialists learned is we have to be in a position to defend ourselves, defend ourselves against imperialism. So they've had to prioritize putting huge resources into building up strong, defensive, capable militaries. And the, the Russian military is has been bequeathed to it by the Soviet Union. It's not the product of an aggressive uh, finance capital um, and you know, its expansionist plans around the globe. You can see that from where it is and what it does and even what type of weapons it has. You know, one of the reasons that uh, the, the NATO forces are coming a cropper in Ukraine is because Russia has such brilliant, what, artillery, uh, which, you know, for fighting on the land, it's not, they're, not, they're not geared up for fighting kind of mobile battles millions of miles away from home. Their focus is on fighting on their own territory and defending themselves. They also have fantastic uh, air cover. They have the best air defense systems in the world. Why? Defensive. <laughs> they are planning how to repel attacks. The whole basis of the design of their military is that, and the same with Chinese. So again, you know, this idea that because they have a big military, they must be aggressive. You know, we are so we accept that idea easily because that's what we are familiar with in our own countries. We live in the belly of the beast. We're used to having an aggressive military who's focused very much on attacking and subjugating other countries. And of course, recently we've you know lived through this horrible experience of knowing that our countries are to blame for destroying, occupying, dismembering, you know, country after country around the world that had the temerity to to stand up to imperialism. Well, moving um on from that question to uh, a broader point about U.S. imperialism, the you said uh, earlier on that the current wars and tensions that are being stoked around the globe are principally guided by the need for uh, complete dominance over the world's natural resources and, of course, uh, the ability of the U.S. to exploit them and exploit different sources of labor around the world as well. Yeah. So is this then a sign of a U.S. imperialism which is decaying and which is becoming more dangerous as it seeks to reassert itself around the world? Absolutely. Uh, you know, it's like they say, the, don't they say the dying beast is most dangerous because it thrashes around and, you know, um, and, and I, I think really that is what we're seeing. We're seeing a system very much in decline. It's actually one of the reasons why it's so important at this at this crucial juncture that all the forces that want socialism, that oppose imperialism, that want freedom and liberation for the people of the world must stand together and do everything in their power to help the demise and the decline of the US, to work for its defeat 
in in uh, Ukraine, uh, in wherever else it wants to spread its wars to, which you know, it definitely is going to, you know, try to go to war against China, no matter what happens in Russia, you know, because that's the logic of its situation. The logic of our situation, the masses of the of the planet, is we need NATO to be defeated. If NATO wins against Russia or against China or heaven forfend against both, that will put back our struggle for liberation 20, 30, 40 years more with all of the suffering that comes with that. You only have to look at what happened with the collapse of the Soviet Union, which let's not forget was very uh, nicely timed for the imperialists who were at that time suffering a crisis, an overproduction crisis, glutted markets, difficulties of getting profits, you know, and workers uh, were under attack at that time. That's what Thatcherism was all about. It was about the, the the attack on, you know, workers' pay and conditions and the welfare state settlement that was no longer sort of affordable to our rulers. So the loot, so the, the collapse of the Soviet Union really saved the system. It gave them this massive shot in the arm because they had this unfettered looting of the former socialist camp uh, that was funneled through, especially through London, but you know, through through Wall Street, through Berlin, um, and really created an orgy of profit taking uh, for you know 10, 20 years. Mm. And created, gave them a sense, the imperialists, that there was now no check on their power. It was, it's not an accident that it was in this period that they formulated the plan to take out every last vestige of independence around the world. You know, they had their list of countries, didn't they? These, mm. Now, this is our time. Now that the anti-imperialist bloc has been weakened, this is our time to go after those standout places and try and get rid of them one by one. Uh, didn't work out quite the way uh, that they hoped, uh, but that was, you know, clearly the aim, uh, you know, to take advantage of that situation uh, to try to crush all remaining uh, independence. So, yes, uh, the system is in decline, it's in crisis. You know, crisis is built into the very heart of capitalist production. The the crisis that stems fundamentally from the fact that there is, on the one hand, the drive to reduce wages in order to put up profits, to put people out of work, to have, employ fewer people in order to, you know, increase profitability. Capitalist to capitalist, you know, that's the aim. But the system as a whole, needs the workers to buy the things it produces. This is the fundamental contradiction at the heart heart of the system, that on the one hand, they're producing what workers can't afford, and on the other hand, they're impoverishing workers so they can afford even less. Right? Mm. And capitalism can't solve this contradiction. It cannot solve it. So when it enters into the, the, the and now that it's a global system, it can't export its crisis either. You know, every every capitalist wants to protect the home market and do more exporting to try to get out of the crisis. But if every country wants to do that, you can see the flaw in, the, in that method of escape. Right? Mm. Uh, you, you can only escape at the at the cost of somebody else. Uh, fundamentally, you know, the drive to war is about liberating, as far as the capitalists are concerned, any area that's not already uh creating maximum profit. So if there's a place where you have to buy the raw, mater raw materials rather than taking them, uh, that's not the maximum profit you could get. You understand? Yes. You, you're just looting. If the people there are totally um, subservient uh, and 
unable to resist, you can come in and just loot like they do in Congo. Look how much effort they've put into making sure Congo doesn't have a stable government and an ability to defend itself against imperialist looting. Well, that's 60 years worth of effort right there. Yeah. Um, but also the case of Libya, for instance, where the difference between uh, them trading with the government led by Muammar al-Gaddafi and the difference that was then noticed when you see how they've been able to essentially rip Libya off royally since they destroyed that government in uh, the early part of the last decade. Absolutely. The, pro- the problem for the imperialists is the more they accrue wealth, actually, the, the more they, their, um, their crisis develops more, more rapidly because <laughs> the problem with capital in the system of capitalism is it never stays still. You know, Marx pointed this out 150, 60 years ago, that the capitalist is the personification of his capital. And the capital sits on his shoulder and whispers in his ear, go on, go on, go on. There's no rest for a capitalist because the job of capital in the system of capitalism is to grow. Mm. So the bigger the pile of capital that you have, the more difficult it is to find the place to reinvest that in order to get your profit and grow your capital. And the bigger and the bigger and the bigger and the more concentrated these supplies of capital become, the harder and harder and harder it becomes to keep getting returns. Yes. You've got to, each time you, your capital grows, you've got a bigger amount to reinvest. You understand mm. me? And the job of that, so there's there's a logic, you know, you're, you're, you're slowly accumulating all the wealth of the planet into your hands, into these, you know, three or four or five, gargantuan kind of hedge funds or whatever and then they've got to be constantly reinvested yeah. at a profit right? at a maximum profit and the opportunities are, are for doing that are shrinking the mm. people who would buy the fundamentally it's labor that creates wealth you know all this gambling on and, and artificial inflation of of stock prices or land prices or housing prices or whatever you know is is the actually a symptom of the fact that no profitable uh like uh, productive investment is possible or, or very little it's it's very difficult to to find ways to productively invest all that capital yes um, well if you look at the actual investment rate of british british capitalism in particular since really at least since 2008 but perhaps even before then the actual rate of business investment in this country is pathetically low Mm. and it's because as you say the actual uh, ability to return that investment on a profit in inside britain is very limited which is why we find the british state underwriting so much of the investment that does come um in terms of the provision of state funds but also the uh, never-ending supplies of liquidity to the major, um, especially the financial institutions that has been engaged in for the last 15 years. Mm. It's that British capitalism now is a completely parasitic entity. They can't even claim that they innovate or create anything anymore. It's just something which is cannibalizing what's left of the um, public services that were part of the old welfare capitalist settlement or engaging in aggressive imperialist wars overseas there's nothing even remotely progressive about it anymore and it's in a very advanced state of decay especially british capitalism so turning to that question how would you characterize uh, british imperialism's role in this picture 
in terms of its um, role within NATO and also the role of it it plays in its alliance with the United States? I think the, the British capitalists, uh, monopolists, the British monopoly class realised reluctantly at the end of World War II that they were no longer the power in the globe and that they're really their best chance uh, of maintaining a decent seat at the at the table was as a junior partner, advisor, and uh, reliable helper to U.S. imperialism, which did have both the economic and the military might to remain, you know, a global power as Britain had been before World War One. That has been an, a kind of ongoing situation. You know, there's no doubt at all that Britain is an important imperialist power in the world. You only have to look at the size of its uh, GDP or whatever, you know. But the, you know, this when they do that, those lists of, you know, economies and, and they rank them by size, why is it? And I, it always amazes me that more people don't ask themselves, why is that? This puny little island with, you know, a tiny population and a, and a very small amount of land, we're ranked like sixth economy in the world or whatever. Why? Why? It's because the British finance capital uh, represents a huge store of wealth. And it is going out around the world doing what imperialist you know, finance capital does, uh, looting and, and draining the wealth of, uh, of people all over the world and then funneling it back through the city of London. And this is what accounts for not only the very lopsided state of our economy and the very uh, incredibly unequal state of our society, but also the, the official size of our economy compared to the experience of most of the people who live here. Mm. You know, very many people will say, well, it's supposed to be the sixth richest country in the world, but what about, you know, pick your thing? You know, mm. Why am I so skint? Why has my school got no funding? Why is our hospital falling to pieces? Why can't I get an appointment at the GP? Why is my road full of potholes? I mean, you know, there's a, there's a list a mile long, isn't there, of the things that aren't working in Britain. And yet we have an incredibly rich and powerful uh, ruling class. Now, Britain's military uh, has been cut back massively uh, because number one, you know, it's hard to afford, but number two, it's really been sort of redesigned as an as an adjunct to the US military. Mm. Uh, you know, that we, we talk about NATO, uh, you know, NATO is, is the front organization, but essentially NATO is owned and controlled by the USA. Um, but it has its its willing helpmates uh, with the with the other imperialist powers who have all for various reasons and essentially because of two world wars and all the damage that that did to their economy and their power and their ability uh, to 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 act as powers alone um they all become herded under the wing of um of US imperialism and have various you know supporting roles in that game and you know you can see tensions between them um, as as you know, their interests are not always aligned, but fundamentally, up until this point, each of the imperialist powers, the smaller powers, um, after World War II, have have in general made the decision that they're better off working with the US to maintain a, the system and a seat at the table than to try to go up against the US. Um, and end up losing everything. Mm. Uh, so you, but you can see that Britain has a very, very tight role with the USA. It was one of the reasons our party, for example, was in favour of Brexit, uh, 
was because it was very clear to us that the EU was another um, wing of this imperialist effort to maintain the system of imperialism against the threat of socialism and national liberation that was, you know, spreading in the world since 1917 and, and, and with renewed vigor after 1945. And that very much the, the USA and NATO stood behind the EU uh, and the US exerted a lot of influence into the, the daily workings of the of the EU, particularly via Britain. Hmm. Um, and Britain was kind of a, a kind of balancing pivot between the EU and NATO and the USA. And taking Britain out definitely destabilized that whole setup. And for that reason, you know, our party said, look, we're not going to have all our problems solved overnight by leaving the EU, but if it disrupts and therefore weakens the alliance of the imperialists, that's got to be a good thing. The European imperialism will be weaker, British imperialism will be weaker, and so will American imperialism. You know, they're all they're all propping each other up. Yes. If all of their contradictions come to the fore, that's got to be a good thing for our class that wants to see the defeat of all of them. Well, yes, and the um, absolute meltdown that followed the Brexit vote from mm-hmm. what well, the ruling class, especially, and their various different political representatives in both the Labour Party, the Conservative Party, well, and all of the bourgeois parties, to be honest, mm-hmm. really, I think, justified the decision that some of us at least made during that referendum again against the um, well, the bulk of the British left, really, which yeah. then committed political suicide by screaming about a second referendum for the next four years and got their got their wish in terms of Labour Party policy and effectively put a bullet in the head of the Corbyn project. But that's a, a story for another day, perhaps. Yeah. The um but that brings us to the unfortunate realities again of uh, opposition or lack of it in in Britain to the current um US led imperialist machinations in Ukraine and elsewhere. Uh, in April of last year, the Labour left or various representatives of it, uh, the MPs that are within the Socialist Campaign Group and as lined with the Momentum organisation, put their names to a what I would describe as a broadly pacifistic um, note uh, that was aligned with the uh, Stop the War Coalition, calling for you know a ceasefire in Ukraine, calling for peace in a very weak way. Um, but Starmer, the leader of the Labour Party, basically told them that if they kept their names on that, then he would withdraw the whip from them, and every single one of them capitulated. So Starmer has also made it a priority in all of his speeches. He leads with his passionate support for NATO, how NATO was a Labour Party innovation, which of course it was, uh, under the ferociously anti-communist leadership of Attlee and Ernest Bevin. And claiming that he stands uh, with NATO, with Ukraine to the bitter end. So from your perspective, Jyoti, did any of that surprise you, including the uh, the rapid implosion of uh, anti-war um, opinion and positions on the Labour left? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Short answer. But personally, I am very grateful to Keir Starmer for spelling it out for all the idiots that their beloved 1945 socialist Labour were the ones who were responsible for founding NATO. It's Mm. an excellent bit of history for him to be digging up. We've been telling people it for a long time, but nobody listens to us. Keir Starmer just told the world, and people report it in all of the newspapers. So as far as I'm concerned, he's doing my job for me. 
uh, by reminding everybody of this fact. He's using it to say, we're going back to our 19, you all want 1945, so do I. This is the bit of 1945 <laughs> I, remember. I remember. How about yes. you? Right? I mean, it's it's actually, it's, it's brilliant for exposing all of them. Mm. You talk about that resolution that they then took, they know, oh, my gosh, step right back from. My God, talk about aiming low and missing the target. Mm. I mean, that resolution, essentially, the main enemy it pinpointed was Russia. Yeah. It is no kind of anti-war resolution. And yet they were still too nearly livid to even stick to that little thing, which basically said, oh, war isn't very nice, is it? It's a genuflection before the mass sentiment that says we don't want war. Uh, it's a pretense of representing anti-war feelings in this country. The anti-war movement in this country is an absolute travesty of what an anti-war movement ought to be. It directs nobody, leads nobody, kind of hand rings in front of them every now and again and, you know, confines itself to kind of liberal type of, you know, just diatribes against the nastiness of the mm. world, the nastiness of violence, the nastiness of weapons. It's, you know, like it's all just some kind of abstract discussion and we were at a kind of church fundraising dinner party. You know, the class nature of the war, the nature of imperialism, you know, they never go in. If they ever talk about imperialism, which they never used to, but they've been forced to acknowledge that there is such a thing as imperialism, which mm. I remember when the people leading Stop the War 30 years ago would, would tell you that, I mean, they weren't necessarily leading Stop the War at that time, but those same people, you know, in the SWP and those type of organisations, when I was holding newspapers against the invasion of Iraq the first time in mm. 1991, I remember coming up against Trotskyites who would argue vehemently that there was no such thing as imperialism. Well, now they've been forced to acknowledge in words, yes, there is imperialism, but they just use it as an empty phrase and they apply it to anybody and in particular apply it to the enemies of imperialism. Mm. <laughs> so, well, which is a classic Trotskyite thing to do, but, you know, so... There, this resolution said nothing, did nothing. It offered no leadership to workers, no no plan for how to actually stop the war. You know, if you're uh, an, a, a meaningful anti-war movement, you need to have a plan of how to stop war. What's their plan? Come to a Zoom meeting, sign a petition, write to your MP. Oh, yeah, the system's quaking in its boots, isn't it? Mm. The idea that working class people have power and that if they organise to use it, they can demand the things that they want and need. Yes. You can demand this war stops by making it impossible for our rulers to wage it. They don't hold the guns. They don't make the weapons. They don't even write most of the propaganda, right? Mm. It's all done by us, by workers. We, you know, even if some very highly paid, you know, um, Mandarin of the ruling class is writing propaganda, who are the people who print it, who put it onto the airwaves, the technicians? They don't do those jobs. Mm. Working class people do all the jobs that are needed, the transporting of troops and material. I mean, just that on its own. <laughs> you stop the transport networks, you stop the war effort in its tracks, don't you? But the idea that um, working class people have power and our job is to mobilise, to use it, to show the ruling class that we mean it and they have to back off, um, they will never for one second put that foot put that forward to people. Mm. Um, you know, you talked about Starmer um, showing up how Labour was responsible for NATO. Well, what we're also seeing is that the anti-war movement is totally in hock to the Labour Party. 
Yes. And it won't really go beyond the bounds of what, you know, the so-called left wing of the Labour Party will accept. And what we see more and more is that it's always been well known to us, but it's becoming clearer by the day that, and the, the Corbyn project highlighted that, the left wing, so-called, of the Labour Party fundamentally is loyal to the Labour Party more than to anything else, to any vaunted claims of wanting socialism or anything else that they might say in order to kind of lull the credulous. Um, fundamentally, they're loyal to their careers. Mm. That's what's, And Starmer's shown us that, again, if we needed showing, you know, that these people, whatever the words they say to act as a little um, pressure valve, pressure release valve, you know, for a bit of working class anger, um, in reality, their loyalty is to, to their careers and to the Labour Party. And what is the Labour Party loyal to? Well, Keir Starmer's made it absolutely clear. Labour mm. Party is loyal to imperialism. So, you know, they're giving us lessons, you know, if we have the wit to learn them. Mm. And I think that the mass of working class people have actually given up on Labour Party a long time ago. The shame of it is how many uh, organisations and forces are still either holding a brief for the Labour Party and still like, oh, well, we, we failed with Corbyn, let's find the next left winger to put in the leadership and pressure from the blah, 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 all of that. Or they're just focused on, um, well, then we need a Labour Party Mark II. Uh, it's still a kind of 1945ism with mm. no no understanding of the lessons of 1945. That, that social peace that was bought uh, to, to, to buy off the revolutionary sentiments of the British working class did not take us into a wonderful, bright socialist future. It bought social peace for a period until such a time as the imperialists had gathered their forces to renew the assault, at which point we, the workers, found ourselves totally disarmed, disunited, fragmented, unable to put up a meaningful uh, defence. And, you know, everything that was granted so kindly to us by our civilised and democratic rulers is being step by step and now increasingly rapidly uh, taken away again. Mm. And doesn't that point to a big problem uh, that the anti-war movement, so-called in this country, has had really even at its height during the uh, the invasion of Iraq in 2003, which was that it was putting forward a broadly liberal perspective based on respect for the United Nations, for international law, etc. And that when we got to the point where essentially Blair won the vote in Parliament, turned around and gave everybody the middle finger and said, we're going to do it anyway, we don't care what you think, then the anti-war movement had no response to that. Because I remember the debates at the time, I was a student at the time, um, go, there was people. There were people calling for agitation around demands like general strike against the war and things like that, but those people were sidelined and those demands were shoved away by the organisers of Stop the War, which were in bulk were people from like organisations such as the Socialist Workers' Party, and therefore they left the, all those uh, millions of people who were attracted to Stop the War kind of disarmed after the war began because they had nowhere to go. Because the whole thing was, well, we'll force uh, this vote in Parliament to go our way. And then when it doesn't, and they just carry out this aggressive action, it left everybody high and dry. Absolutely. So you've pointed to a couple of things there. One of them is this role that these so-called anti-capitalist movements of various types, whether it's Palestine solidarity, anti-war, anti-austerity, whatever it might be, 
um, all of these front organizations, which are all run by the same clique of people, uh, they have a role of encouraging people back into or stopping people from understanding and learning the lessons about the nature of the bourgeois state. So mm -hmm. parliamentarism is is always held up by them as the kind of epitome of democracy, bourgeois parliamentarism. That you know, if we can if we can affect the decision makers in parliament, you know, so so absolutely no understanding or ability to teach anybody else about the true nature of the of the bourgeois state, how it works how it manipulates people, how, how the decisions that really matter are not actually taken in parliament, how the people in parliament are uh, loyal servants of the ruling class. That's how they get their jobs. That's how they're paid. But they're, even if you replaced every one of them, you wouldn't be in control of the bourgeois state machinery. You know, mm. This is not widely understood. And these are the very people who ought to be explaining that to the working class. And instead, they per perpetuate the illusions that we're taught in school about our democracy and our representatives and, you know, our parliament, our mother of all parliaments, all this, you know, all these nursery tales, mm. uh, you know, that that we're, we're filled up with as kids. They perpetuate the belief in these, you know, kind of hoary legends. Uh, so that's that's one side of their activity, you know, the way, the type of activity they do, the way they direct their so-called protest and, and channel people's anger down essentially meaningless avenues, but even to the extent that they hold their demonstrations, you know, in parts of town and in times of the week where they will not cause any disruption to the workings of the system, hmm. only to, you know, other workers, essentially. Yes. No, no disruption to the system. They don't take their demonstration, their two million people, to the middle of the city of London on, a, on the middle of a weekday, do they? Hmm to make it difficult. They don't come and occupy the stock exchange. They don't come and occupy Whitehall and make the workings of the levers of state power and finance capital, you know, grind to a halt. None of that. It's, you know, or let's bumble about in the West End and end up in Hyde Park on a Saturday or a Sunday, you know, when nobody really out of the way of people and nobody cares. Mm. You know, I mean, it's it's an, all an exercise in just letting off steam. Now, if you look at that um, particular demonstration that you're talking about when stop the war became this massive force which its leadership never stops telling us about how they mobilized the biggest demonstration that ever happened you know the truth is uh, it was a section of the ruling class which mobilized that demonstration hmm. it wasn't the, the you know the uh, the great and the good of uh, the SWP and the CPB and you know those others who who um tie up the leadership of these organizations between themselves. Um, there was a split amongst our rulers at that point. Um, and if you remember, that split was a was a Europe versus USA split. Yes. Uh, European capital wanted Saddam Hussein gone as well, but they didn't agree that war was the right way to go about it. Mm. Uh, Britain found that its ruling class was divided between the Europhiles and the uh, uh, Atlanticists. Atlanticists, that's the word I'm looking for. Thank mm. you. The uh, US aligned types. And fundamentally, the US aligned section won out because it was the most powerful. It's basically the, the bankers, uh, you know, the financiers, the, the arms dealers, uh, the oil companies, and, and those happen to be the, the biggest and most powerful sections of monopoly capital in Britain. So other sections which were more European aligned, 
were just not as strong. Mm. But they did have uh, access and control of sections of the media. Mm. It was the da- oh, I'm terrible at this. It was the Daily Mirror, wasn't it? Yes. Which ran a campaign leading up to the outbreak of the war, making all sorts of allegations against Tony Blair. Blood on his hands. I remember that very vividly. The front cover of the of the of the Mirror. Um, you know, Tony Blair with blood dripping off his hands, right? I mean, mm. they were really stoking emotions and and reflecting, for the first time in a long time, reflecting a sentiment that was very strong amongst the masses that we didn't want this war, right? Mm. And they mobilised for that demonstration. They advertised the demonstration in the pages of that newspaper. They ran their presses through the night to produce placards for that demonstration. Yeah. So they had a, there was a section of the ruling class that was opposed to that way of deposing Saddam Hussein. They didn't want the war to happen. That's why France and Germany didn't join the war. That is why Robin Cook resigned, remember that? Always the the, the great martyr of um, principle. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So he represented a different section of the ruling class and they they put everything they could into stopping the war effort up to the point where the war started, at which point they went, oh, well, we're in it now, so we must support our boys. Mm. Um, which was why you had Liberal liberal Democrats on the platform of that. Yes, day. I remember. Charles Kennedy was there. That's right. So, but, <laughs> so they had this broad, as you say, lib lab consensus of war isn't very nice, is it? We mustn't have this war. Uh, nobody questioned uh, the campaign of media lies against Saddam Hussein, though. No, the, yeah. they all agreed that well, um, was evil, the, the Baathists were bad and yeah. had to go. They just disagreed yeah. as to how, how which which is why it was relatively easy for the British ruling class to reunify itself in the, yeah. re, with regard to the tactics they later pursued against uh, countries such as Libya and Syria, where it was uh, plausible deniability war, uh, war via proxies war via hired gun jihadists uh, they were all on board with that in fact that that's when the stop the war coalition was revealed to be completely impotent because it couldn't and didn't oppose either of those wars did it not only it didn't but essentially when it came to the war against libya the most shameful action it undertook um was that in the run up to that war when the when the when the media hype the propaganda against Colonel Gaddafi and against Libya was reaching really fever pitch. Stop the war organized a um, picket outside the Libyan embassy in protest at the Libyan government. <laughs> so essentially, they gave their blessing to the propaganda war against Gaddafi, mm. which, so to then come out afterwards and say, well, war isn't very nice. We don't think it's a good idea. What they're saying was, your aims are correct. We mm. just don't like your tactics. Now, if that's not demobilizing the working class and demobilizing the anti war movement, I don't know what is. They are culpable, as far as I'm concerned, in this horrific crime, which for which the whole world is still suffering. The destruction, the the ramifications of the destruction of Libya are still spilling out across the world in you know hundreds of different ways. Whether it's jihadis set loose, you know, all over the world, where whether it's you know this this now failed state 
where once there was the richest and most stable country in Africa, you know, become a, become a fails that a playground for the CIA where anybody can do anything, you know, out of sight of the rest of the world. They can they can train their mercenaries, they can shit, run their guns and run their drugs and whatever else they do up there. Uh, the people of Libya have suffered a, a tremendous and crushing blow to the great progress they had been making. Um, and many, many countries and projects across Africa that Libya had been funding and supporting also collapsed, mm. you know. So, uh, and of course, you know, the, the, the wave of, of jihadis that spread across the world and, and are being trained there has affected, you know, every corner of the world and every country that stands up against imperialism at some point or other gets landed with some jihadis that have got their training in Libya. Well, yes, it's why the uh, the U.S. wants to and indeed is transferring um, Salafists from um, northern Syria, where they've lost, uh, into Ukraine. And that's been documented now. Uh, yeah. They're like an international legion for U.S. imperialism, effectively. Absolutely. So we've talked quite extensively about uh, the Russia-NATO war and uh, what's going on in Ukraine right now. But to move to a couple of other areas where um, the the statement of the World Anti-Imperialist Platform covers uh, what's going on in those areas as well and the actions of US imperialism, particularly with regard to uh, China and the recent um, controversies that have erupted over the visits of uh, the former Speaker of the House of Representatives, Nancy Pelosi, uh, to Taipei. And of course, the new Speaker, Kevin McCarthy, he's got a he's got to equal that, so he's going to go there as well. And Furthermore, there's the statements from Starmer and uh, his shadow foreign secretary, David Lammy, of Bilderberg Group fame um, and expenses fiddling fame. Um, he has stated that they've got this very important alliance with the Japanese now. Japan has agreed to essentially undergo a process of further remilitarization, not that it was ever fully demilitarized anyway. So it seems clear that they are planning something with regard to Taiwan possibly using Japan in the role of proxy, not that anybody's really asked the Japanese people about that. Can you comment on what is the US imperialist agenda here? And how are they planning to use Japan, which historically speaking, using Japan against China seems to be, well, not drawing on a particularly good precedent? So talk about not drawing on good precedents, you only have to look at them insisting that Germany sends its tanks into Ukraine against Russia to to see that they don't really care about uh, what kind of echoes they're reawakening for people. Um, When it comes to Taiwan and China, what we have to understand is that, number one, Taiwan is a province of China. It's not an independent country, never has been. Um, It was occupied by the fleeing reactionaries at the time of the Chinese Revolution. And at that time, the People's Liberation Army didn't have the ability to pursue them and finish the job, um, in particular because they were immediately backed up by the forces of US imperialism. Um, So it's been an ongoing question, a a leftover part of the Chinese Revolution that needs to be finished. Um, And the Chinese have always had you know the the right and the desire to to finish that finish that job one way or another. The Taiwan question has to be settled, and Taiwan has to be reintegrated with China, of which it is a part. And you know, its people have always considered themselves Chinese. You know, um, so it's been a tool of U.S. influence. What we have to ask ourselves is why is it sort of ramping up so much now? Um, 
And the answer is the same as, you know, why is the aggression against Russia ramping up now? It's been in the pipeline for a long time. Um, you know, the, the US uh, and the imperialist camp have had that understanding that Russia and China present a threat, not because they are aggressive, but because they have these strong militaries and these uh, flexible, diverse economies, which enable them to withstand the might of imperialist pressure and enable them to defend themselves and their sovereignty. And this is at a time of crisis now, this crisis of profitability we were talking about earlier is unacceptable. You know, the imperialists are becoming desperate to expand their sources of profit taking and the Russian territory and the Chinese territory are huge sources which are not fully open to them to loot as opposed to just trade with, which mm. is, as we've said, is not the same thing when it comes to making profits. That's not maximum profit. That's just, you know, low down, low grade normal profit. And that's it's not enough. Um, so China is seen as an obstacle. China also has been cutting the ground out from underneath the feet of the imperialists, of US imperialism in particular, but all the imperialists, by creating frameworks, structures, infrastructure, mechanisms for trade and development, which give other countries, not only China, but other countries around the world, an alternative to being under the economic and military domination of the imperialists. And more and more countries are starting to feel that they have a choice now. And they don't just have to accept, uh, you know, imperialist blood money on whatever terms it comes with, which are usually, you know, open your economy to our looting and um, accept our bases on your territory and all the rest of it. Um, and, the, you know, the fear of, you can see Libya almost like a, a, a mafia punishment beating, right? It's a reminder to the world, get in line, or you'll be next. We can mm. take anybody down. Look how strong we are. You know, nobody can resist us. There's no, there's no power in the world that can stop us. But increasingly, that's being shown not to be the case. You know, Libya, I think, uh, Yemen's a slightly different case. But Libya was the last time that the, that the US forced its way in somewhere, uh, forced its way through the United Nations, essentially sidelined Russia and China which were still following policies, essentially that slight appeasement policy of like, look, we are not, a, they, were, they were desperately trying to convince the imperialists not to target them by saying that we're not a threat to you. Mm. We don't, we're not getting in your way, just leave us alone and, we, and, we, and we'll be good partners in the world. Um, we just want to live in peace. We just want to be left alone to live in peace and get on with our affairs. And I think Libya was the last time where either Russia or China felt like that was that was in any way going to serve them because all it does is make the you know the rampant bully more rampant still and um they've understood there's nothing they can do that will stop uh the USA and the imperialists generally seeing them as a threat precisely because they retain some independence and it's mm. the independence which they, which they won't brook it's not their social system it's not the language they use it's not the type of economy they have it's the fact that they have independence and they're not open to total imperialist corporate looting. And so having understood that, Russia and China have made their preparations and drawn their lines and said, well, we're going to have to defend ourselves then. And that is essentially, um, you know, the, 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 the US 
and the imperialist whole global economic system is in crisis. They are pushing towards war in order to try to escape from the crisis. Um, China is simply making preparations to defend itself. You know, and this are all these provocations around Taiwan. Um, you can see that the issue is being whipped up by a section of the U.S. ruling class that wants to bring wants to bring uh, the, the the antagonism, the hostilities, which are being waged undercover all the time. Hmm. You know, there's actually a war against China going on now. You know, Chinese workers are being killed by you know jihadi and various separatist movements that are funded by the USA and by the imperialists in all kinds of corners of the world. You know, Baloch independence fighters in in, um, Pakistan, for example, attack Chinese engineers who are trying to build railway tracks. You know, I mean, the economic war, the media war and the physical shooting war is going on against China and against every ally or friend of China around the world constantly. But there's there's elements amongst the US ruling class who are desperate to bring this war more into the open to get the PLA properly engaged. They want to start, as they want to wear down Russia, they want to wear down and weaken China. They want to find some way to destabilize it and break it up, bring down its government, you know, one way or another. They, they convince themselves that there is a way, but they're also well aware that their time window is, if they're going to manage it, is short. And they're also, you know, desperate because their crisis is deepening yes the the fundamental kind of context of what's happening is that now if you look at all of the all the signals of their drive toward the the rearmament uh the remilitarization of japan the official kind of drive towards rearming and and remilitarizing japan is one very unmistakable signal uh the fact that Japan has been invited as an observer to NATO meetings. The fact that the Japan Japan is is joining in joint military exercises uh, with the South Korean as well as uh, U.S. Army, they're preparing. Uh, you know, they've been taking part in the exercises aimed against the DPRK. Very, very aggressive, unprecedentedly aggressive, and getting more aggressive. You know, sort of month by month. Uh, the tensions on the Korean Peninsula, I think, are absolutely sky high right now. Um, so there's a section of the U.S. ruling class that really wants, you know, war to happen sooner rather than later, and you can you can see that in all the preparations that are being made and the, and the kind of hysteria that they're drumming up. Would it be fair to say, and I think this is a, a good point to uh, close off our discussion on that the the actual uh, strengths of U.S. imperialism in particular has actually been draining away over time. Uh, so, for instance, <clears throat> they had their big moment of um, you know, squashing a very much weakened Iraqi army in 2003. But after that, they've been forced into a situation where they're waging war by proxy, where um, they are unwilling in Ukraine so far to risk their own forces. They're prepared to, in the words of Senator Lindsey Graham, fight to the last Ukrainian. They're prepared in the case of Taiwan and and Japan to fight the last Taiwanese and Japanese because they still don't have the uh, necessary uh, authority within their own state, within the US, to actually call up and call upon the reserves of manpower they would need to fight this kind of war because the actual opinions of the US working class towards the US federal government towards the US state aren't actually as favorable and as loyal as they were, say, 70 years ago. And the the truth is that they can't 
they even after 9-11, even after the uh, they could point to an attack on the U.S., the level of recruitment into the U.S. Army still tailed off very, very quickly. So they are trying to cover for this weakness by dragooning other people into doing their fighting for them because they are still weak, far weaker at home than they would like the the world to uh, have the impression of. What what do you think of that as a as a way of understanding some of this? I mean, it's very clear that U.S. imperialism is in decline. There are many indicators of it. Um, it's been <laughs> spending way above its budget for such a long time now that we've all got used to it, we sort of don't recognize the the various mechanisms by which they enable that to keep happening. You know, the way they've almost weaponized their debt uh, in terms of forcing other countries to take dollars endlessly um, and, and and pushing their inflation around the globe by that mechanism, you know, so that it doesn't hit home as quickly as it ought to have done when they're printing money endlessly. Um, The, we can see all of these shifts are accelerating now that we're, we're reaching a kind of a tipping point where more and more um, of these symptoms which have been being warned about and talked about for some of them for you know 20 years or more um are are all now becoming much more glaring much more obvious so that this endless money printing it turns out it did have consequences it just took a while to come home but now you know we, we're suffering this huge inflation crisis this um sh- this this growth of an anti-imperialist or, or the reformation of an anti-imperialist camp centered around Russia and China that's enabling countries once again, as they did with the post-war national liberation movements, to start to consider the possibility of having sovereignty and, and mechanisms for enabling them to do that. Um, you know, and the fact that even the Saudis, you know, this loyal ally of the USA, are considering, you know, um moving out of the sphere of total US control and dominance and and talking about you know the the move away from the petrodollar you know that that could you know that's a huge a huge um a blow to US imperialism one it could, couldn't easily recover from you talk about the the declining authority of the USA and i think that to its own population i think that's a really important thing to understand not just understand where it's come from, the the proximate cause, but the ultimate cause of that, because the proximate cause, I think, has really been twofold. On the one hand, it's been um, with the sense that they didn't, you know, the imperialists felt with the collapse of the Soviet Union that they were the kings of the globe. They didn't have to make so many concessions to the working class. Uh, But with the undoing of those concessions, there's also an undoing of people's faith in the values of Western bourgeois liberal democracies, right? Because they thought this was just meant because they were civilized countries. They didn't understand that the bribe that they got for social peace was really a reflection, a pale reflection of the things they were demanding from a socialist revolution, right? Mm. And the things that they saw the people of the USSR and the socialist countries being provided with. So that's on the one hand. And on the other hand, there has been this failure to win these wars. So they drive to war with a big and with a big flood of jingoistic propaganda and, and demonization of the leadership of some country or other that, that the imperialists are targeting. And for a while, people are fooled by it. And if the war effort doesn't take very long, as for example, Yugoslavia was dismembered and destroyed very quickly. So the opportunity didn't arise for the ruling class to start fighting amongst itself. They were, they were and remained united, and therefore the truth about that war didn't sort of filter through to many people. Mm. But, but it was different 
with Iraq. For, 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 for one thing, um, the ruling class was divided from the beginning. For another thing, although they went quiet about their opposition once the invasion started, the resistance of Iraq meant that that war dragged on. And as the war dragged on, dissension within the ruling class once again came to the fore. The right way to go about things, who did what, who did, who said what, who was to blame. And as they start fighting with one another about who's to blame for the fact it's not going well, all kinds of information starts to come to light. And as that happens, the workers start to become cynical because they see time after time after time, the things they were told and whipped up into a fervor about as the reasons for going to war are exposed as lies. And not only as, 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 as lies on behalf of the person who said it, but it, the lie being known to the government at the time. Mm. So they become increasing. This has happened time after time after time. And each time the lies are being exposed more quickly than the last time. And so what we're seeing is that these wars, which were meant to ensure you uh, imperialist dominance of the globe, like in perpetuity, actually, number one, they don't win them <laughs> because the days when people just laid down and accepted, uh, you know, subservient status are gone. They were gone in October 1917 mm. and they're not coming back. No people will accept being invaded and colonized anymore. And that, you know, that's the death knell to every imperialist uh, in invasion, you know, forevermore. They, they will never be able to peacefully loot the globe. Um, but in the process of that resistance taking place, the splits, the schisms uh, in, the, in the imperialist propaganda come to the fore and the workers become um, cynical about the state, the politicians, the media, the motivations of our rulers, the, the purpose of these wars, you know, all these things start to come to light. And so, as you say, there's, a, a, on the one hand, you know, the conditions for working people are such that they are less inclined to look the other way when their rulers are committing crimes and less inclined to give them the benefit of the doubt and assume it's all being done for jolly good reasons and in the interests of, you know, civilised values. Uh, and on the other hand, you know, the, 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 the lies that have been exposed mean that they, they just don't trust their ruling class uh, in the way that they, that they once did. Mm. Well, I think this that's a good point to uh, bring the discussion to a close on, Jyoti. But before we go, uh, do you want to tell people where they can find out more about the World Anti-Imperialist Platform and any other work you want to make the audience aware of? Oh, sure. So um, the World Anti-Imperialist Platform was launched back last October. Uh, we put out a declaration which was really um, uh, trying to draw a line in the sand, a demarcation uh, between the that we gather together, we hope, uh, the forces around the globe that have a common understanding of what imperialism is, whose side the workers should be on, and try to uh, extend the reach of that organisation across the globe so that we can build a really solid anti-imperialist block around you know, the, the resistance that's already being generated by countries like Russia, China, DPRK, Venezuela, Iran, etc. 
And to, you know, to help workers understand that they do have a side in this war. They mm-hmm. definitely have a side. So the Paris Declaration uh, was um, published by the, the anti-imperialist platform back in October. Uh, it's still open for parties all around the world to sign. And we continue to uh, take our activities to different parts of the world. So we had a conference in Belgrade in December. Uh, we have another one coming up in Caracas in March. The PSEV, the ruling party of Venezuela, has signed the Paris Declaration. And we're organizing a, a big event in Latin America uh, in March. At the same time as we have these events, we also, uh, you know, parties that have signed the declaration organize demonstrations in the cities in their countries. So each time we're hoping, you know, as the as the as the platform gains in its strength and momentum and moves to different parts of the world and pulls you know, more uh, parties and organizations on board, whether they're, you know, small communist parties or big, big state ruling parties, um, you know, what, as we extend our, our, our influence and, and ability to, to to bring this unifying line around the world, you know, we hope that those simultaneous demonstrations each time will also get bigger and more extensive. Um, so you can read about the World Anti-Imperialist Platform on uh, my website, thecommunists.org. Uh, you can also read about it at the World Anti-Imperialist Platform website, which is WAP21.org, W-A-P-21. Um, yeah, and I would encourage people to, to read the documentation on there, to, to think about and understand what what it is that we're saying um, and, and think about how we can help to improve the reach of the message that we're trying to bring to workers that it's not good enough um, just to not like war or to be cynical. We have a side. It will materially matter to us who wins this coming conflict. Mm. If the imperialists win, as I said, it's more death and destruction for the planet for another 20, 30, 40 years. You know, we desperately need to forestall that outcome. So we really need an organized anti-imperialist movement that aims to stop NATO in its tracks. There are many things an organized working class can do to stop the war machine and to sabotage its ability to function. And we should be looking at, at how we can do that. Excellent. And uh, I'll link to uh, both of those sites you mentioned there in the show notes so people can, after listening to this interview, can go and find those. But uh, this has been a really interesting discussion today. So it only remains for me to say, uh, Jyoti Bra, thank you for joining me on Red Star Radio today. Great. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Proletarian Radio. We aim to bring you the best Marxist analysis on current affairs, revolutionary history, and theory. Do like, comment, subscribe, and share our content to help us reach the widest possible audience. We are a small organization with limited resources, and we need workers' support if we are to grow and fulfill our mission. If you are able to make a one-off or regular donation, no matter how small, please visit our website at thecommunists.org and register as a supporter.